I hear my name taken in vain on the Joe Franklin show? Holy smokes. There's just there's no, you no place to hide in this world, I'll tell you. Of course, one time I'm out there on the football field. You don't want to hear about that story, do you? I'll mention that again. Do you think that'd go over tonight? I got a letter from this kid, see, here a couple of days ago, and he says, Shep, he says, I don't know what to do. You know, you read all these these letters and stuff and the editors and you read editorials and life and time about what kids are really thinking of. And they rarely, really mention what kids really are thinking of. I got this letter from this kid and he says, Shep, he says, I'm in this band in this town in this Jersey high school. And he says, you wouldn't believe it. He says, there isn't a straight guy in this band but me and Frank who plays the clarinet. He says, the rest of this crowd has completely gone over the line. He says, it's insane. They got fluffy shirts, he says, with little bells on the ends of their shoes. He says, some of them are taking sewing. One kid is taking home heck. He says, three of the guys are all dating the drum major. And he says, it's a sickening scene. I'll tell you, what am I going to do? <laughs> you never would think, you know. Hello, testing. Hello, 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 test. Oh, hello. Hello. Sounds very high-pitched tonight, doesn't it? This microphone, huh? Hello, hello, test. Hello, one, two, three, four. It's, uh, I see. Hello, 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 one, two, three. Uh, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you feel good tonight. That's, uh, I've decided tonight that I'm going to do something that, uh, that I've been threatening you to do for a long time, and that is I'm going to do a friendly show. I, I, uh, I, I've, uh, you know, I was looking back over some of my uh, old records here. I keep records on various shows that I've done. and You know, it hit me. I have completely backslid. It is sickening when I think about it. Is there anybody out there who will, who will honestly say on this night in July, who will raise his hand right now before us and admit that he is also a backslider? There's nothing more sickening than a backslider. I mean, and you know, there's some people, uh, some people who never seem to backslide. They're always climbing up that great slope of achievement and you know that they're not kirk douglas he doesn't he's not a backslider and and you can tell that jimmy stewart isn't a backslider when he gets sent to washington he's going to clean up the mess he you know this and then there's the rest of us and i'm looking through my tapes and you know, you know all the records of various shows that i've done in the past and it, and it and i came across this little notation that as of january 1st of this year and here the year is almost half over. We're in the, what is it, the seventh month already? July? I had made a resolution, a series of resolutions that I was going to go straight this year. That, that I, I was, I was going to be absolutely straight. I was not going to make any smart cracks any longer. And I was only going to say nice things. And I was going to give you the time all the time. And you remember when I said that I was going to give you the time and I was going to play... Uh, Oh, John Gambling type music. That's the kind of music that everybody wants. Sound of me. Uh, uh, for example, I have a collection of Julie Andrews records that I've collected for all of you. And there's nothing nicer than Julie Andrews records. Don't you say that. That's what I say. Of course, I say some other things. There I go. There I go again. Doggone it. Is there another backslider out there? Poor silly fool. Wait a minute, I just said... Uh, you're sure there's another back... Sure it's a backslider? Hello? Hello, are you a backslider? Yeah, I'm a backslider. Well, how far have you slid? I slid all the way down into the muck of listener dumb. Yeah, how come? What happened? I started out at the beginning of the year. I was going to get great grades. 
Yeah. First quarter, I didn't do so good. Oh, gee, kid, yeah, I know. Second quarter, I was going to get good, better grades, you yeah. know, make up for first quarter. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. And now here it is, July, uh, and you're in summer school, year. trying to make up for the year before last, huh? Yep. <laughs> next year, I'm going to make it. Get in there, kid. Next year, right? Uh-huh. Let's all say it together. Next year. Next year. Next year. All right, kid. There's another victim. Well, we're all, we're all in it together. I don't know what to say. Listen to this. I mean, I, I don't know where to turn. You know, I, I, I on, on the one hand, I believe in, in uh, I, I believe in the old virtues. There's no question about it. I believe in womanhood. Uh, and then I read this kind of thing. Sunderland, England, a 24-year-old mini-skirted brunette drank 24 pints of beer in front of a goggle-eyed group of male customers at the Bluebell Pub Friday in Sunderland. 24 point, 24 pints, friends, that's all. 24 schooners of beer. She asked that her name not be revealed, and you know why? She says, my family would have a fit. They don't know I drink. They don't know you drink, honey. Well, they'll know when you get home after 24 pints of, <laughs> of the ready. And the... This is the kind of thing, you know, and this poor kid out there, he's, he's still floundering around, you know, backsliding. Off. Listen to this one. A six-year-old girl was recovering from her first hangover yesterday in Port Washington, Wisconsin. She was drinking soda pop in the basement of a friend's home with three other kids when they found a bottle of scotch and started mixing it with their drinks. The six-year-old had considerably more than the others, police said, and the four finished the fifth. I repeat, the four finished the fifth. She wobbled home on her bicycle, staggered into the house, and collapsed. Better read it, passed out. And uh, she is still sleeping. She's been sleeping it off for three days. Wait till that kid wakes up. Boy, talk about spiking the knee high. But, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, you read this kind of thing, and you, you say, well, you know, the, 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 hope, uh, the hope that springs eternal is sometimes based on, on idiotic idealism. It has nothing to do with the realities of the case. And I'm walking along here about an hour ago through the heat of Times Square, and I'm looking at, the, you know, my fellow native New Yorkers. And they're all, nothing, nothing gets more like a cake of yeast for those of you who are out in the, in the hinterlands, the boondocks, who are out there and... Places like, uh, oh, you know, uh, Rabbit Hash, New Jersey, and nice places out there. You have no idea what New York gets like in the heat of summer. It's like the whole town is in heat. Not only, uh, you know, it's in heat. That, that, uh, you feel it everywhere. There's a, there's a kind of, a, a kind of a subdued, yet, uh, yet uh, secretly rampant passion. And you walk down through Times Square, and Times Square gets like a gigantic cake of yeast. An enormous cake of yeast this time of year. And you get the sweat and the crowds, and the ladies uh, crowding into shrafts, and uh, wearing their, uh, their, you know, their funny little hats, their Iowa hats. And they keep seeing all these uh, young men walking around with their little bells on their shoes. And it's Times Square. It's the whole thing going gigantic sign all over it says the bible john houston this is now a fantastic motion picture and then it oh yeah screenplay by john houston did i tell you about the time i walked in the drugstore at liggett's and there's this you can buy a bible now it says the bible underneath it it says a fantastic motion picture by john houston 
I wonder what a lot of people buying that say, well, what is this? You know, they keep saying the and thou. What does begat mean, Fred? And, <laughs> that wasn't in the movie. <laughs> a lot of scenes that weren't in the movie that are in that book. And uh, <laughs> vice versa, too, incidentally. <laughs> Every time I think of no, I want to fall up. You know, the one in that movie. But uh, nevertheless, these are, these are the kind of things that, that hit you when you come through. And it's hot. See, it's 95 degrees. And New York really turns on at this time of year. And the heat coming down. And I get in the elevator. And I was bracing myself. We got this elevator operator who has three lines. He speaks all year. One is, the first one is, he, he says it with a smile. See, he just thought of a new original funny thing to say. He says, uh, well, what's new? And he looks at you. That's, that's, his, that's his, his working gag. That's the one he uses during ordinary days, see. And then I always say, beats me. We, he and I got a very close relationship. We, we keep this on. It's been going on for years. It's kind of like a marinda, marimba player, you know. We just keep playing the same tune, Carnival of Venice, over and over again. And then, then in the, in the wintertime, he's got another one. He'll say, uh, cold enough for you? Then my answer to that one is, I have a stock answer to that one. I says, sure is. I mean, that's, this, is, this is basic native wit. See, this is, this is working wit. has nothing to do with Jackie Carter. This is, the, this is the real wit. And so as I approached the door of, this, of our, our little establishment here on Broadway, I was bracing myself because I, I could see the elevator operator all the way up ahead of me there. He, he sees me coming in through the swinging door, see, and I could see his eyes sparkling. He's preparing his yearly mole. This is his, his big one, see. And he sees me come through the swinging doors, and I walk up to the swinging doors, and he, he comes waltzing up to me with a sparkle in the eye of a true, basic folk humorist. And he says to me, well, hot enough for you? And I thought, just once I'm going to throw this guy a curve. There's a lot of people in there, see. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, hot enough for you? Figuring I didn't hear it, see. What do you mean hot? Swell. It's, is it hot enough for you? Well, by this time, the crowd is getting a little restive behind me. See, it's plenty hot enough for them. And they've been standing on the elevator four minutes while we're exchanging these two uh, deathless remarks. And he says, uh, is it hot enough for you? I says, Clarence, as a matter of fact, now that you... Are you asking me this? He says, well, uh... Hot enough for you? He's completely thrown. He can only go back to his original line. You see, it's like an actor who doesn't know what the play's about. And that uh, when he's thrown a curve, he, he can only say the same line, like, uh, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. And if the skull starts to whistle Dixie, he should say something about that. See, to, to keep that away. He just keeps looking. Well, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him well. It keeps whistling Dixie. So I said to him, well, Clarence, I'll tell you. You ask me if it's hot enough for me. And you know, it's a funny thing, Clarence. I was thinking about that when I walked past the Leggetts. And uh, it's 95 degrees, and I said to myself, is it hot enough for you? And you know, by George, Clarence, I have come to a conclusion about that. You've been asking me that now since when was it? 1958, I believe, the first time you asked. And I never really answered you on that one. And by this time, his face is kind of red, you see. He's a little confused. And the crowd is beginning to snigger. One guy kept hitting me in the back of the knee. 
And so I says, you know, Clarence, I've come to an answer to that. And he says, okay, all right, all in now. The door closed and up we went. I never did get a chance to give my answer. I'm going to get him tomorrow. I'm going to commence, and it's going to be 107. I'm going to say, hey, Clarence! Hey, Clarence, I just been... And I know that the basic width of a... Speaking of basic width and uh, the rote... You know, most things we do today, we do by rote anyway. Uh, most... I, I would say... Now, I'm just going to ask you a question here. I'm going to ask a personal question of you. Now, if you can imagine yourself as a pie, your life as a pie. You know the kind of pies you see on, uh, let's say, the first page of the Wall Street Journal. It says, where your tax dollar goes. You know those pies that says, uh, fooling around in the government, 87%. Uh, defense, 12%. Uh, Paperclip, 16%. And uh, you know, that kind of thing. Then there's a little tiny skinny one that says, good works. At the, you, know, you, know, you know how these pies work? Well, now, if I were to take your life, see, and uh, here, here's a pie. You're a 24-hour-a-day life pie what your mind does. And uh, there's a big chunk out of it right there. See, it says sleep. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a dead issue. There you are. You're skunked out. You might as well be silly putty for about one-third of the pie is gone right down the drain. That's like the pie, you know, of the taxes. One-third, it says governmental expenses. You know, it means trips to Guadalupe for senators that want to make sure that the, the dancing isn't lewd there so that the sailors can watch it, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, they, you know that they do go on things like that. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> I met a congressman in Beirut watching a, uh, watching a belly dancer one night, and there were seven secretaries, and they're taking notes. And, you know, I, I'm not kidding. It was in Beirut, and it was a wild show, you know, and I, I, after it was all over, and he's sitting there taking notes, and they're bringing the champagne and everything to the center, and he's hollering, and he had a paper hat on, which I thought was a nice touch, paper hat and yelling. And uh, when we got out, uh, in fact, we were in the, in the men's room, and I says, hey, hey, Congressman, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm, uh, I'm on an investigative junket. And I said, junket, little bubbles over his head. His paper hat was a little crooked. And I said, what are you investigating? He says, well, you know a lot of our boys come to places like this, and someone has to make sure that they're right, because a lot of those young men are just out of small towns in Iowa, and we don't want to have them... Uh... I said, well, I, I see what you mean. There's a lot of them right there behind you, the next table, they're yelling and out of... He said, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. It was a new idea, you know, what the government does, and I realized that, you know, I'd make a devil of a congressman, you know, come to think of it, right? That reminds me, speaking of chicanery, this is W.O.R., Friends New York, and uh, we have Rosetta here. Listen, I got a great letter from this kid. He said, I finally did it. He says, I bought this fantastic device at Rosetta, which I put together with a diagram I found in Popular Mechanics, and he says, and the old man's hair has been standing on end for, for a week and a half. He says, I electrocuted the cat. Well, uh, <laughs> well there's nothing wrong with that. I'm anti-cat myself. You know, did I ever tell you about the time my kid brother was in Burma? And uh, they, he was in the Army in Burma, see? Now, oh, i got to finish the Rosetta spot, don't I? Yeah, because they're all out there. The little beavers are out there writing it down. Yeah, okay. All right, fellas, send for your Rosetta catalog. They've got a lot of great stuff over there, and they have three fantastic stores, one at 79 Chambers Street, one on 45th Street, at West 45th at 75, one at 73 Murray Street, which is only two blocks away from where the mayor spends all of your tax dollars down there at the city hall. And 
Someday when you're down there, you can just see what you can really do with the mayor. You know, our ingenuity, you know, ingenuity and all the electricity. And uh, speaking of that, while you're on the subject, send for the catalog. That's Rosetta. And uh, my kid brother was uh, in this basha. You know, you've heard the term basha. That's a term they use in James Bond movies and that when he's in the Far East. And, and uh, he and six other GIs were living in a basha. That's a true story. And uh, they're in the, in the jungles of Burma. And, man, they ain't no jungles like those jungles. These are real bad jungles. And for miles around in these jungles, there's nothing but vines. There's nothing but uh, snakes. They have more. Oh, that's the loudest clock in the world here. They, let's just let it go for a while. It'll hold the show down there. They had more snakes. They had everything going there. And everybody had malaria, see, and everybody's butt. And these six guys are in this little basher. And they're in the army. And this basher was raised up off the ground, about eight or nine inches off the ground. Had uh, little pilings. And underneath, the snakes would fight the rats, and the mongoose would fight the, the cobras, and the cobras would fight the tarantulas. You know, all night long, they're laying in their basher. And they'd hear this stuff going on. Hot, oh, boy, I'll tell you. It was hotter than the hinges of hell. You know, 150 degrees there. 97% humidity all the time. Monsoon season would come, and the heavens would just descend. And the temperature would go up 30 degrees. You know, nothing. It was just on and on and on. They had heat, rash, heat, rash. And they had one other problem. There was about, oh, maybe 100 yards from where their basher was, there was a tiny native village, the Burmese Indian types living there. And one of the things that this Indian village was noted for was its sacred cows. And it had a lot of these big, slobbish cows would walk around. <laughs> and nobody would, they'd walk right through the store, or they'd walk right, through, you're taking a shower, he said the cow would come right through the shower. And nobody ever said anything to these cows. And of course, these are GIs, you know, they, they, don't, they really don't buy cows the way people in other places do. So one night, the four of them are sitting around, my kid brother's there, and it's hot and raining, and the cow has come through their basher four times. And uh, this cow uh, was having a little dietary problems. And uh, it just didn't make life in the basher more interesting. It's a, you know, it was kind of a problem. And so one of them says, hey, i got an idea. Remember, these guys are all in the Air Force. They've got all this electrical equipment, and they're, they're, running, they're running a transmitter, which is off in the woods, a 50-kilowatt CW transmitter is what their job was. So one of them says, hey, listen, what would it be like if we were to take some of that number 18 copper wire, that, that bare copper wire, and we were to run it around and tie it to the trees all around here, see, around this place, and then if we were to get one of these power transformers, one of these spare power transformers we got, and then when we wanted to keep the cow out, we just put a little juice on that wire. So the four of them sitting there and they're thinking about this. And they say, you know, that's not a bad idea. Why, George, we'll wire up the compound here. So in the middle of the rain, the monsoon, the rain is coming down. They get out and they're wiring up this, this tree all around the house. Goes the tree, the bash, the little wire goes around. And they run it inside with a, with a twisted pair. They run it into the, right into the basher. And they've got their own little electric supply there, you know, 110 volts that they're generating out the back. So they hook up the power transformer. And they sit there and they say, you know, that was pretty interesting. At first, we noticed that every time that water, the rain would come down, it would hit the bare wire and it would go, 
just ionized. And it was kind of interesting. You see a little steam out there with the wires going there. And so they keep hooking the transformer up and testing it. They, one of them says, well, let's put it on the 750 volts. And I said, no, oh, no, come on, let's put it on 1,200 volts. And uh, so finally they got the transformer hooked up. And, and uh, this was fun at first. You see, like, like most toys that man builds, he is very interested in it at first, but he tires of it quickly. And so they, half an hour after that, they're still playing around with it a little bit desultorily, as they say. And then interest began to drop off. And the only one that was left was this corporal, who was a, ma a maniac about equipment anyway. He kept playing with it. And the rest of the guys are conked out in their bunk and scratching themselves. And the flies are flying around. The mosquitoes are going through. And it's the late afternoon. And the corporal is playing around with the transformer. And all of a sudden, the corporal says, Hey, you guys! Hold it. Shh. Don't make a sound. And the four of them raise up on their bunks with the heat rash and the mosquitoes falling off of them like scales. One says, what's the matter, Fred? He's, here comes one of them damn cows. I'm going to get one. And they all raise up slowly and look out of their basher window, which is made out of screen. You know, you've seen these in the this kind of house in the Somerset Mom movies. You know, the missionaries' downfall movies, that kind of thing, and the rain is coming down. And he says, and off in the distance, three guys are sitting there hitting little gongs together, and somebody's burning incense, and you could smell the opium, and once in a while a tiger would go through the compound. And he says, oh, was it hot? And the vultures are flopping around. They had fantastic vultures there, he said. And he says, this cow is walking along. See, it's a sacred cow. And like all sacred cows, had begun to believe in its own sacredness. That's the thing about sacred cows. They, you know, they begin to read their own publicity, and uh, eventually the cow believes that it is immune. See, so the cow's walking around, and this cow sees the basher. Well, this is the same cow that's been traipsing through the basher now for about a month. And once in a while, this cow would just stop. They're all sitting around eating. See, and the cow would just look right over one of their shoulders, and one one big gulp take in half of the SOS they're eating, you know, that kind of stuff. You never knew cows liked SOS, did you? Oh, they love it. Terrible thing. Gave wild milk after that, but nevertheless, they loved it. You know? and, and he's this crummy old cow. Oh, this cow is a rock. It had fleas, you know, real. But a, a sacred cow, great big mother, you know, big one. And so the, the, the four of them are watching out, and the rain is coming down. He said, dramatic scene. The rain is beating down this ancient culture. See, the jungle is all over them. And he says, once in a while, I could hear the sound of a couple of Jap Bettys go over. They were way, way, they were beyond the lines, this guy. Was, this crowd was way past the Japanese lines. Merrill's marauders were considered rear echelon troops to these guys. And I'm not kidding you. And so once in a while, a Jap Betty would go over in the rain, and they're watching this cow, seeing the cows walking around. And here's the corporal over there, hunched over his transformer. And it's got about nine taps on it. You can go all the way from about 150 volts to about 2,500 volts tapped all the way. See, maybe 200 mils at the best. And so they're debating now whether to hook it up to the 2,500. Hey, they don't. Better not. Why don't you back it off to 700? It's okay. All right. He switches it on to 700, and the rain is still coming down. The cow is getting closer to the fence. Meep. Meep. The rain continues to roar down. My kid brother says, you know, this was the first time in three years that I was interested in something. 
I forgot Burma. The dengue fever. He had dengue fever, man, that just didn't stop. Malaria. That's gone. It's for the first time in over two years I could actually see. He had malaria so bad he was blind in one eye and then on the other and then the other and then one ear would stop and one foot would stop working. Oh, they all had it, see. And he says, now we're really interested. And the cow goes, meh, meh. And now the cow is six inches or maybe seven from the number 18 wire. Meh. The chews a little bit on some rotted vegetation. You could see the man-eating orchids growing fatter by the minute as that hot rain of the ancient Himalayas boomed down out of the darkened heavens, the monsoon. And then it happened. The cow moved forward five inches, six inches. And now that cow's hide is about a quarter of an inch from that wire. The corporal says, okay, watch this. He threw the switch. There was a zap. The cow stood up 30 feet tall and went, whoa, whoa. And slowly expired among the hooded cobras. And gee, I sat there for a minute. What the hell? You killed it? The cow was laying there, down there among the mongoose among the tarantulas. Well, you know how religious matters are. Within 30 milliseconds, by underground, almost by, by metaphysical fiat, this great wave had gone through the native village. Somebody has just perpetrated the ultimate, the ultimate in anti-God statements. The cow is now nothing but roast beef. Well, he said, we're sitting there waiting to see what's going to happen. And he says, you wouldn't believe it. Out of the jungles, out of the woods, came 40,000 angry natives with blood in their eye and beaten tambourines. And you could smell the incense and the torches going, yelling and hollering. He said, and the four of them were sitting on their bash the rain coming down. And the corporal says, should I hook this thing up again and get them? <laughs> and all of a sudden, the cow shook itself. <laughs> and slowly got up. And these giant GIs sat there. Holy smokes. That was a close one. And one of the local metaphysical experts took a look at the cow. And the cow looked at him. I was okay. The GI sat there for a minute in sweat. They could have perpetrated another holy religious war right out there in the Burmese jungle, just using a miserable 750-volt power transformer. Well, half an hour later, the cow is in the basha. They're feeding them SOS. Cows drank up all their lemonade. Ate my kid brother's sunglasses. Cow walked in, took a shower. 
slept on the floor all night long with the flies in the middle of the room there. And it was that moment that my kid brother learned a great lesson. He says he's never, never... By the way, he became a cow worshiper, in case you're interested. He said there was enough juice in that, in that, eight, that, that number 18 wire, believe me, to have killed seven completely operating elephants. And that cow survived. And so, he says, you know, it's funny, you know, when you find yourself going native. He said, never forget the day the chaplain came over. A couple of months later, the chaplain was on his rounds. Chaplain came over one time, sat down with the, with the little group of GIs there. He says, men, I'm here to talk about your souls. Well, it wasn't their souls that was bothering them. It was the heat rash. They had more heat rash. I'll tell you, they were sending it home for souvenirs. They just, you know, peel it off of them, send it home. One of the guys says, Reverend, I'm religious enough, but have you ever thought about cows? And this nice Midwestern chaplain, he paled. Just thought about what? Well, cows. My brother quietly said, Amen. And the corporal says, You know, Reverend, some things you don't understand until you've been out here in the jungle for a couple years, maybe three, four. And the next week, after the Reverend left, without any explanation, all six of the G.I.s in that basher were suddenly, with no questions, transferred to a cooler climate. Now think about that for a minute. By the way, my brother now, he's forever changed. Forever changed. He drives along U.S. 41 once in a while out in Indiana, sees a herd of cows, doesn't laugh. A little different now. Once you're touched, there's no going back. Do you remember that movie with Tyrone Power? Remember Tyrone Power searching endlessly for the great guru who was going to tell him what the story was all about? Well, you remember how bad he got? Just can't help it. And it's the heat that does it. It's the infernal heat just sits down on the back of your neck like some enormous, unimaginable beetle and won't let go. Wonder how many, how many sociological studies have been done on the effect of climate on total, on total philosophies of entire worlds that the people live in. Just the heat. Well, I'm walking along. Times Square today, temperature's 97 degrees, and I see that the action is changing. It's very different now than it was, say, in December. The feeding is different. I thought to myself, what would happen now if it stayed 97 degrees in Times Square for one year? What would change? How would we differ from, let's say, the temperate 
climate people that we are now. One solid year. Well, I come into the air conditioning here. And I see one of the guys. As I come in, he says, oh, boy, is it hot. I'm in the newsroom. I'm sitting at the desk. And now I'm getting to the nub of the show tonight. I'm going to do something good for you. Do you people think this is actually hot? Do you really think this is a hot day, friends? Do you? Do you want me to tell you about heat and how I learned about heat one time? I'll tell you, I learned... This, this, this kind of weather to me is like... A, how can I say? A balmy June day. Because, you know, heat is one of the real experiences that you don't forget. Once you've enjoyed or have been seared by truly withering heat over an extended period of time, you do not forget it. And from that time on, any temperate heat is greasy kid stuff. Now, I'll tell you, you've got to learn it early, though. The, the earlier you learn it, the better. Now, I'll tell you the story. I'm a kid. I am 16. I have just gotten my work permit. And I've gotten a job working in the steel mill. It is summertime. And I'm a junior in high school. Now, perhaps you know, traditionally, it gets very hot in the Midwest. You know about this. You know that the, you, the, the legendary stories of, of conventions, political conventions in August in Chicago. Uh, you know, the heat really, really, really gets going out there. And when it gets going, it just doesn't stop. But that's not what I'm telling you about. That heat is heat. It's like this. It's like today. The only difference between the heat here uh, on a day like this in New York and, say, the heat in uh, Oklahoma City or Kansas City or Gary, Indiana, which is out there on the edge of the grave, no oceans for miles around. And that lake doesn't do anything. All the lake does, really, and, uh, in late August is the lake keeps it hot. You see, the water has gotten very warm in the lake by August, and instead of cooling the land, it heats the land. And so you don't get that cooling off at night, that old water out there just keeps it hot, see? And so uh, a day like this, uh, the difference really between here and there is that out there it goes for long periods of time. They may have, oh, five, six, seven, eight weeks of 95-degree temperatures, where it'll range sometimes between 95 and 104, 105. And then the mosquitoes come. Well, that's not even what I'm talking about. It was a hot day. I remember this day till, till well, I'll tell you, whenever I start complaining about working in the radio station there, anything else that I ever do, I think about this one unbelievably fantastic hellish day that I lived through. It was not a day, it was a week. I'm 16, and I go down to the clock house, and I'm all excited. See, the summer before, I had been a mail boy in the steel mill. I've run all through the mill, and I know the mill, and I'm excited about working in the mill this summer. Now I'm 16, see, and I'm official. They can give me a real official-type job. And uh, I go down to the clock house, and they assign me to a work gang, 
I don't know whether you know what a work gang is, but a work gang does not work in any one... When you think of a steel mill, I have to explain something to you. The steel mill is really a large number of mills, all gathered in one area. And so you have, this, you have the rail mill, you have the tin mill, you have the 100-inch the plate mill, the 14-inch merchant mill, the open heart, the blast furnace, the Bessemer, the uh, hot strip, and the cold strip. These are all gigantic operating factories. And they're all very separate and distinct. And so when a man says he works in a steel mill, he can work, it's like, it's as varied as to, to say, well, I'm a human being. There are all kinds of human beings. And the steel mill is a fantastic, almost a total microcosm. It's really a, 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 a complete world. And so you can work in the office and live a great life in the steel mill. The air conditioning blows. You've got nothing but cold water all day long. And the cafeteria is right down at the end of the hall. And they've got jello and ice cream. That's a great world. On the other hand, you can work on the open hearth floor, which is like working in the oh, the sixth or the seventh Dantean ring at the inner circle of Hades. That's a totally different steel mill. Well, I innocently one day, and I've been working in the mill now all through the month of June, and my laboring gang has been working in the flying shears. Isn't that an exciting name, the flying shears? Well, the flying shears is a is, is an adjunct of the, of the well, in, in some mills, it's an adjunct of the plate mill. Other mills, it's an adjunct of the, of the tin mill. Most generally, you find it in the coal strip. And the flying shears were cutting odd pieces of metal into great big stacks. And the flying shears is a great big shear that is, a, if you can imagine, a big drum with a thousand blades on it that runs at a great speed. And this metal comes through it in a long, endless ribbon. And it just cuts it. As this blade spins, and his stuff is peeled off like cards. And it's a tremendous operation. We used to stand and work this thing like, uh, I mean, like six guys working an atom bomb, you know. And they are a little scared of it. The boys at wild to work. But it's cool there, see. It's all cool metal. The metal is cool. It's, it's tin, the kind of tin you, you get in tin cans or Pepsi cans. Nice metal thing. And they had fluorescent lights and... Once in a while, they'd go through with a little Coke wagon, and they sell you milk, and, and they, I'm, you know, I'm really working. And then I would go out into the hot air after that and go home. Well, on this day, I would go up to the clock mill, and my, 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 my little gang is forming up, and they're going to get sent to another mill today. And they're acting very different today. These guys have worked together for 19 years, and it was me and three other guys, one guy named Dunker, who were just kids who were attached to this gang. And here all these guys are sitting, these bohunks, Hungarians, the whole crowd, see, and we've been working with these guys, Amo, the whole crew, and they're very sullen today. Now, they're, they're always, if you know anything about laboring man's humor, they're always doing stuff to each other, you know, like hitting each other with a salami, or, or they blow up a paper bag, and when Fred isn't watching, they go, Hey, Fred, pow! You know, that kind of, oh, wow. Hey, Bullock, look at him, oh, wow! You know, that's working man's humor, see. Today, it was none of that. We're sitting in this open bus. They're going to take us to our mill. And they're just sitting. Not a word. Once in a while, one spits out of the window with the tobacco juice. Where are we going? Amos says, 40-inch soaking pit. I said, where? 40-inch soaking pit. I said, how long? Who knows? I said, what do you do down there? 
You'll find out, kid. Until the truck rolled off. Five minutes later, we're before the 40-inch soaking pit mill, which is a long, black, evil-looking shed that stands up in the air about 15 stories, black, covered with soot, railroad tracks crisscrossing the yards all around out in front of it, and great flatbed cars going in and out, and the doors are roaring up and down. You can hear this great roar going on inside, and we unpile. We go trotting in. And for a minute, I couldn't get my eyes accustomed to it. The temperature outside of this mill was 95. Inside, friends, the temperature must have stood at 160. It just hit you like a great blast. You know how when you open the refrigerator door and the cold air comes out? Well, just reverse it. You open the door. It drifts out. And it's as black as the inside of the heart of a raging Spanish bull. You can't see anything. A few little flickering flames. And then my eyes began to accustom to, to this darkness, and they were leading us through these passageways. And I see great pits laid out on the floor. Deep pits, 13, 14, 30, 40 feet deep, these pits, lined with heavy black and green and gray stone. And in each pit, they have lowered these tremendous red-hot ingots do you know what is it, an ingot, friend? Well, they weigh maybe 30 or 40 tons. Great chunk of molten metal. And now it's been poured into an ingot shape. And they have lowered them into these pits to let the heat slowly soak off of them rather than to allow the heat to escape quickly. It's the soaking pits. And you can see dark figures moving in the hazy gloom of the smoke. And the next minute, I found myself dressed in an asbestos suit, being lowered into an empty soaking pit. And I'm wearing shoes made out of wood with an asbestos top and an oxygen breathing mask over my face and green goggles over my eyes. The temperature at the foot of the ladder that I climbed down stood at exactly 190 degrees. I was to work down there for five minutes chipping shale. And at the five-minute period, as soon as the five minutes were up, they would pull a rope, and I would climb back up the ladder. You were not allowed to stay in there longer than five minutes, or they'd come in and get you, if they could find you. All day long, five minutes in, five minutes out. Five minutes in. And it got to the point, friends, when I would get up to the top of the soaking pit, the temperature of 140 degrees would feel like air conditioning. Oh, that cool air. How can you guys stand it in this cold weather up here? Eight hours I put in that first day. And I got in the bus going home that night. It's standing at 93 degrees. I can hardly stand the cold. And I fell asleep instantly as soon as I got home on the day bed. I slept to the next morning. I got up. I could hardly stand leaving the house. It was 94 as I left the house. And there was Emil standing by the clock house. Soaking pits today, kid. One solid week, I worked and toiled in the innermost bowels of hell. I know what Dante was talking about. I love this cool weather, friends. 